This episode of the Police One Podcast is sponsored by Officer Store. Learn more about getting the gear you need at prices you can afford by visiting officerstore.com. Courtesy of Officer Store, listeners receive 10% off now through December 31st using the promo code POLICE1. That's police and the number one. Hey, welcome back. You are listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, check us out on our YouTube channel as well, and you can get a look at me and our guest. Well, the United States Supreme Court made some significant rulings on cases this year that affected policing in America. Still, some important issues await, and some may be resolved before the end of the year. But today, I have Terrence Dwyer, Terrence Dwyer retired from the New York State Police after a 22-year career as a trooper and investigator. He is now a tenured professor in the Justice and Law Administration Department at Western Connecticut State University and an attorney in private practice representing law enforcement officers in disciplinary cases, critical incidents, and employment matters. He is the author of the soon-to-be-released Homeland Security Law Issues and Analysis from Congella Publishing. Well, welcome to Policing Matters, Terrence Dwyer. Thank you. Please call me Terry. Well, Terry retired from New York State Police uh, as an investigator, a trooper, professor, attorney. Uh, You've got all sides of the issues, and you've done some great reviews, annual reviews on Supreme Court cases. Uh, you've got an article coming out in policeone.com, just like last year. Well, one case in particular this year decided the difference between stalking and our First Amendment rights. Such was the case in Counterman versus Colorado. Uh, tell us about it and what does it mean for online threats, bullying, and and so on? Well, it's uh, it's an interesting case, and I think it's it's of limited uh, application, but it's something for police officers to be aware of. Uh, there's a local singer in Colorado, and she was stalked by an individual unknown to her who sent her uh, various messages through uh, Facebook and other online media, I believe. And uh, some of them were very benign, uh, like, good morning, beautiful, how are you today? And then others were more, uh, more direct uh, nature, uh, some cursing involved, some underlying threats. Uh, she contacted the police. The police responded. They um, uh, did their investigation, and uh, the individual was arrested. The problem with the case, by the time it got to the U.S. Supreme Court, was that there was no uh, subjective showing. Uh, the, the state statute only required uh, just basics that there's there's a threat and there's a fear on, on the behalf of the victim. Uh, there was no, uh, that's an objective standard, what the court said. There's no subjective standard. We all know as police officers, uh, you know, you need the act, the, the physical act for a crime, and then you need the corresponding mens rea, the mental element. And what the court said in this instance was that there was no uh, subjective element. There was no mens rea being shown. Uh, Justice uh, Elena Kagan wrote the decision and she said, look, all we need is the bare standard of uh, a recklessness, uh, at least, to, to show. And all the prosecution offered, and this is by no means a failure on the police part, that this is just what the statute required at the time, but the prosecution only had the messages that were that were sent. And absent showing some indicia or indicators of 
the subjective state that the individual knew or was likely to know that his messages would cause uh, annoyance and alarm, uh, there was the, basically a failure uh, in the in the proof. So, uh, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court said that there are, there are things known as true threats. Uh, basically, it's intimidation and likely to cause some sort of annoyance, alarm, concern. But there's always uh, in in crime, unless it's a strict liability offense, such as you know, speeding, you have to show a corresponding mental state. And that's essentially what the court said here in Counterman. I thought it was an interesting case for police officers, though, because how many times are officers called to harassment or stalking complaints? And we know history tells us that some of them may be um, fairly innocuous, but many lead to more serious events or could potentially. I, I think it's just kind of a caveat for officers to be aware that, you know, aside from taking the, the statement from the victim, there, there's more. I don't believe there is an interview, uh, and I could be wrong, but I don't recall there's an interview of the defendant in this case. And, uh, you know, so this, it's just like that extra step that officers uh, need to take in these in these sort of cases, um, because the the court has said, look, we have to be careful around speech and police always have to be careful. And in this day and age with social media protests, uh, not that we haven't had them in the past, but uh, we have social media. We we have the ability. Everybody's a news reporter now. Things get posted immediately. Officers have to be aware when they are arresting individuals uh, on on anything relating to speech or conduct. The court has said we can place reasonable time, place and manner restrictions on speech uh, and certainly uh, a true threat. We can statutorily limit true threats. Uh, that's a reasonable manner restriction on on speech. So while police can arrest for that, we have to be our officers have to be sure that they have that subjective element that they can prove or bring to the prosecution that uh, you know mens rea element. Yeah, and this puts cops in a difficult position because, like you said, we're often called to these kinds of threats, uh, sometimes domestic violence, but sometimes between strangers, otherwise strangers, uh, in these stalking situations. So maybe. What it really means is that police officers who take these reports have to be very nuanced in how they portray what is told to them by the victim. And sometimes, like I say, it's nuanced. Uh, there may be facial gestures or hand gestures or uh, a veiled joke when we know it's really a threat. And that's really got to be articulated in, in the initial report. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the victim and look, if the victim is going to express some sort of fear or or concern or that they're intimidated, that that's fine. What the court is saying is, is that we need some sort of proof of that mental element on the part of the perpetrator, the, the, the defendant. And again, that could be as simple as as often is done in these cases, going to the source of the um, the, the, the threat and determining the nature of it. And an interview could certainly, uh, you know, meet that criteria, uh, what is what is told to the police officer. And again, you know, in this case, it's not so much uh, an infirmity on the part of the police officers, it's the state statute, and it's what was required under the state statute. So the statute itself was um, not thorough enough or not clear enough. Uh, and that may be something that the legislature may go back and look at. But again, an interesting case and just something for officers around the country to, to be aware of. 
you know, we speak broadly when, when we talk about Supreme Court cases, but as I always uh, warn in, in any of my articles, you know, the, the, this is the general rule that the court puts out. States under their separate uh, constitutions can certainly provide broader constitutional protections. And we have to look at the state statutory law as well if we're dealing with with a state issue as opposed to uh, federal federal statutory law. Yeah, absolutely. And so something more common uh, that a police officer may um, encounter are, of course, Fourth Amendment searches, searches and seizures. Uh, Pennington versus West Virginia. Uh, it's it's a case that talks about whether or not police can lawfully enter a home to search for a subject uh, of an arrest warrant. Tell us about that one. Yeah, well, I, actually, you know, this was kind of uh, a year where there was not a lot going on. Normally, I have a, a slew of cases when I'm doing my year-end review that deal with the Fourth Amendment or Fifth Amendment. Lately, a lot of qualified immunity cases. And uh, I have an upcoming article for Police One that, uh, again, gives my year-end review. But it's not so much about what happened as far as what didn't happen. Uh, Pennington is the case that the court refused to grant review of. And it involves uh, Peyton versus New York and a split amongst the different circuits, the federal circuits. Generally, when there's a split amongst the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, the Supreme Court will take a case to, to consolidate that. They did that many years ago in the case versus Wren versus uh, versus the United States dealt with uh, issues of racial profiling, whether a subjective versus objective standard applied. And there had been a split in the circuit. Uh, among the circuit courts, and the court consolidated that. Uh, they didn't do that here. And that's what the attorney for the uh, woman who was ar uh, arrested uh, sought. So with Peyton versus New York, we know that uh, the court has said that if police have a reasonable belief that a person might be in a location and they have an arrest warrant for that person, they can proceed to enter. They don't need a search warrant if it's that person's location. Uh, and the language is reasonable belief. Now, how is that language interpreted? Some circuits, like the Second Circuit, where I'm in in New York, uh, say that, you know, it's it's a uh, it, it requires less than probable cause. It's a less stringent standard than probable cause. And the D.C. Circuit follows suit. And I believe the, the, the Tenth Circuit, I have it here in my notes. Yes, the Tenth Circuit. But other circuits, the Third, Fourth and Sixth Circuit, uh, take a, a view that reasonable belief equates to probable cause. And in this case, it was a young girl. There was a uh, basically a truancy petition out for her, which is equivalent to, to a warrant in that location. And they believed that uh, she was in the house. Now they didn't have permission to enter, they didn't have a search warrant, but they went in under the basis of that truancy warrant. Uh, and they ended up arresting the mother for concealing a, a child. The court denied review on that. They they, they simply de denied review and uh, it, they, didn't take the case to look at what the attorney was was seeking, the, the appellate attorney, to kind of consolidate the issue. So I just thought that was kind of an interesting case that they that they bypassed. Um, and again, officers just have to look to the state statutes and and what their prevailing state law requires uh, in in that sort of situation. I think this is unique in that the it seems like the state law again equated the truancy warrant or petition with an arrest warrant for the child to bring her back to to school. 
Yeah, and we've seen that before here in, in San Francisco. We had cases where uh, there was a administrative warrant issued to health inspectors and our role as law enforcement officers going into the property was a little bit different, just like you're talking about, that uh, it's not a search warrant and it's not a rash warrant. It was an administrative warrant for health officers to investigate. And that was where the, the I think it was the Ninth Circuit Court here in California right. drew the line. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And that was one of uh, four cases that the court essentially denied uh, re review on this year that uh, normally if they if they grant a review and issued a decision, I'd be I'd be talking about those those cases in my article. Uh, and another case that they <clears throat> excuse me, denied review on was uh, Lombardo versus City of St. Louis. And this is the case that the court decided in, in 2021. And it was a case dealing specifically with uh, issues of qualified immunity. And in that case, the court sent it back down. They said, I believe it was the Eighth Circuit. Yeah, the Eighth Circuit improperly inserted themselves in the place of the jury when they determined that the actions of the officers, and this involves somebody who was in a cell, uh, I believe who was unruly. The officers got the individual prone in the cell. There were several officers involved, and they were kneeling on his back for some period of time. The Eighth Circuit, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, held for the held for the officers. Supreme Court gets the case; they reviewed it. Uh, they said they really didn't look at the full picture. They, they kind of acted too hastily. They sent it back down with their directions for review. When it went back down to the Eighth Circuit for review, following the Supreme Court guidelines, the Eighth Circuit once again ruled uh, in favor of the uh, police officers. The parents of the uh, individual who who uh, was injured, I believe died, um, again, sought review in the U.S. Supreme Court uh, to review now the Eighth Circuit's determination that there was, in fact, qualified immunity, that, that it applied. And the court here now refused to grant uh, review. So the Eighth Circuit decision, after it was sent down, stayed as, as it was. So again, this is a case in 2021 that the court issued a decision in, uh, bounced back up this past term, and they denied re review. Yeah, so that was Lombardo versus the city of St. Louis. And yes. in our in our current era of um, elected district attorneys or sometimes state attorneys, uh, they seem to be pushing the boundaries a little bit in prosecution of police officers. I have to believe that in some cases they know they're not going to make a win, but maybe just the charging is there for the sake of uh, appearances for, you know, segments of the community that elected them to, quote, you know, clean up policing. Um, is there any recourse for, for those kinds of cases? Can a city attorney or a district attorney or a state attorney, is there any uh recourse against them for these sort of malicious, I don't know if we could call them malicious prosecutions. You know, uh, district attorneys, prosecutors have absolute immunity for decisions that, that, that they make. But if I can take you back in time to the uh, Duke lacrosse case, and if you're familiar with the, the, the circumstances there, uh, the district attorney there, and this didn't involve police officers, but involved several collegiate lacrosse players and accusations of rape uh, against them. 
Uh, one of them wasn't even at the at the scene, and thankfully he had an ATM uh, receipt and and I believe video to to confirm that. But the prosecutor Mike Nightfog was subsequently uh, prosecuted uh, for his conduct in that case, his egregious conduct, holding back evidence and everything else. Uh, that's an extreme example. If a district attorney is acting on good faith an individual, a police officer is going to be hard pressed to seek any damages or, or relief. I do believe there have been some cases filed uh, in this, in, in the country. Uh, I want to say possibly in Philadelphia. I don't know, uh, maybe somewhere else. I do recall reading something uh, in the past. I don't have the full facts uh, regarding it. But there has been some pushback. Sure, officers have sought to push back, and they've they've obtained counsel to to do so. I would submit this: the, the circumstances have to be fairly egregious uh, on the part of any prosecutor because of the immunity that they're permitted uh, under our under our law. Uh, but there there has been some movement. Yes, there 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 certainly has been. Yeah, I'd love to see it. I I know. I can think of one case in particular where I think um, it, there was a strategy where the district attorney used a grand jury to indict um, command level officers. And uh, based on perjured uh, testimony and false facts brought into evidence, and of course, there's not much of a defense, no defense in a grand jury, um, and they did indict, but after the smoke cleared, uh, the officers were acquitted, and uh, the, the the original charged command people were were given um, uh, a decision of factual innocent by another judge reviewing the case. So you would think, mm. you would think in 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 those terms that there would be some sort of recourse. We'll we'll keep watching on that. Sure. I mean, look, there is such a thing as prosecutorial overreach, and <laughs> there is such a thing as prosecutorial misconduct. I had a professor in law law school who was one of the foremost experts in prosecutorial misconduct uh, in, in the country and wrote a book on, on it and several law review articles. So, yeah, it's definitely possible and, and it's out there. And look, I think any working police officer has no problem if a fellow officer does something, commits a crime or, or acts in, a, in an egregious manner outside of their sworn oath, um, would have no problem. The issue is, is the overreach in a lot of cases. And it's always going to involve use of force. It, it has involved use of force. And, you know, there, there are clear cut examples where we could look at and see some videos and say, sure, that's that's potentially actionable and the officer, officer has some issues. There are other cases where, you know, the Supreme Court has consistently said, we're, in terms of qualified immunity, we're not going to subject uh, split-second actions on, on the street to kind of 2020 hindsight. So that's that's the other factor that, that comes in. And something that I've always talked about in um, any time I've given use of force presentations Depending where you are in the country, you have to be concerned or aware of uh, the concept of officer-created jeopardy. Some circuits, some federal circuits, in terms of uh, qualified immunity issues and use of force, will look and will look at whether or not the officer put 
themselves in a position that created the jeopardy. And if that's the case, that will negate, for lack of a better word, any qualified immunity claim or objective reasonableness claim. Hmm. So that's something else that uh, officers need to be to be aware of. And also the finite differences between, you know, qualified immunity jurisprudence and Fourth Amendment use of force jurisprudence. I know there's been some presentations. There's two that I've seen recently uh, around the country with attorneys <clears throat> doing some uh, presentations on on kind of the, the subtle differences. And these are police attorneys. These these are individuals who've represented officers for many, many years and are familiar with the, the landscape. Uh, all too often, what I found in, in the past is that m- municipalities don't have separate dedicated police attorneys. They have the municipal attorney, the town attorney, the village attorney. Quite good in what they do, but these are individuals who largely handle contracts, uh, land zoning issues, and are called in when something happens involving their municipal agency. And they're not schooled or aware in the the the, the various issues, the multitude tudinous uh, issues involving police officers and use of force and qualified immunity and, every, and everything else. So um yeah, there, there's 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 a lot there's a lot of education out there, and there's a lot more that we need to get our officers. Yeah, let me let me ask you a little bit more about qualified immunity and one case in particular. But first, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor, Officer Store, equipping protectors with passion. That's how we operate, and it's how we live. We understand that having the right gear can mean the difference between life and death. Our goal is to get you the gear you need when you need it at prices you can afford. Visit us at officerstore.com. We're back and I'm speaking with Terrence Dwyer, retired New York State police trooper, investigator, professor, and attorney. We just touched on qualified immunity. And, you know, after the George Floyd incident and Breonna Taylor and a couple of others, uh, qualified immunity became a hot issue maybe a moral panic issue around the country uh, it was portrayed as a, you know, do all uh, be all shield for police officers. We know it's not, it doesn't shield police officers from uh, the kind of malice and egregiousness that they were accused of in, in the attacks on qualified immunity in Fox versus Campbell. The issue is a critical one in that it relates to qualified immunity for police officers. What did the Supreme Court say on Fox versus Campbell? Well, again, this is another case where the court denied certiorari. They they didn't review it. This is a case out of the Sixth Circuit. And uh, in this this case, two deputies went to a home on a welfare check. And the individual at the the residence, there's an individual and his spouse or significant other in there, didn't initially respond. Uh, there was some back and forth through the door when he did respond. He asked the police if they had a gun. They asked him if he had a gun. He said he did. It ended up he didn't. But within 28 seconds of arrival, uh, one of the deputies fired two shots at the door. And then at the 31 second mark, there was another six shots that were fired. So eight shots within the span of, of 31 seconds. Uh, the court denied review. 
what happened in the lower Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. It was a lengthy decision. I didn't get to read all of it, but I, I read the highlights. Uh, the court, a summary judgment motion was brought by the by the officers to say, look, there's, there's no issues of fact here. There's issues of law and the law should favor us. Uh, the court partially granted their summary judgment motion and partially um, sustained the, the the complaint. What the court did is it left in the excessive use of force force issue and whether or not there was a seizure, whether at the time the police officers fired, the individuals in the home were effectively seized under the Fourth Amendment and could not willingly leave. And then again, the issue whether or not it was a, an excessive use of force. The uh, Supreme Court denied review on this. They let stand the Sixth Circuit uh, decision, and the case was uh, sent back down. So, you know, I and I and I think you you touched on it uh, in the lead up. You know, qualified immunity is misunderstood in a lot of sectors. It's misunderstood in the sector that screams for the end of qualified immunity, and it's mis often misunderstood in the law enforcement sector as as well. It's not a be all and end all shield cloak of armor that's going to protect officers, uh, but it it is fairly extensive, as just as Byron White said uh, many years ago in Malley versus Briggs. You know, qualified immunity protects all but the the plainly incompetent and stupid. Uh, so, you know, again, we're talking about egregious conduct. Uh, and we we get into the difference when we get to qualified immunity issues is whether or not the law was clearly established. Right? And, that, and that, that's the crux of it when uh, courts are reviewing uh, instances of, of qualified immunity. If the law is clearly established and the officers violate that law, then certainly there's going to be uh, constitutional uh, liability. Um, you know what we saw in po post George Floyd is a lot of uh, a lot of states move to initiating their own kind of anti qualified immunity immunity laws that under our state laws they can't change what the federal courts have said. They can't change the what the U.S. Supreme Court said regarding qualified immunity. What they can do is under state statutes. Uh, limited as a defense. Uh, this is something that for years I've always marveled at because I've always marveled at plaintiff's attorneys that are suing police officers running right away to the federal courts and getting on their on their, you know, on their horses, charging on their steeds and, you know, constitutional violations, constitutional violations. And the court has made those cases increasingly hard to sustain against officers again. The conduct has to be fairly severe, um, but I always wonder why they didn't bring state law claims. You know, why did they bring state law claims, which I thought would be an easier road path for them to go? Uh, now, if those state road claims are are brought, a lot of states have ended that kind of qualified immunity at their level. They say we're not going to permit it. And again, it's not a broad stroke. You have to look at the state statutes but that's essentially the the environment we're in we're in today yeah and again uh when we talk about things like search and seizure and things that are open to plain view we use technology more frequently we have uh, <laughs> automated license plate readers video yep. systems drones uh we're even tapping into uh you know community members uh ring uh and other devices 
How did Moore versus the United States affect the use of cameras in public places? Yeah, well, again, not a, it's not a Supreme Court decision. <laughs> it's one where they denied certiorari and they denied review. But again, it's interesting to see what cases the Supreme Court is going to take and which ones they're, they're going to turn down. And certainly technology has been has been an issue. And this is a case that I was interested in because when I was an investigator, uh, I, I had an informant. I had a case I was working at a Middle, Middle Eastern CI. I was looking at a lot of things that subsequently after 9-11 were like, whoa, this, this case is bigger than than I originally thought. And I had a pole camera uh, outside a mosque uh, on a public public utility pole. Our tech unit put it up and, and I was watching that location because my informant had told me certain things and I knew there were certain targets going in and out of there. And it was a certain date and time I would set it up. Uh, that was 2001, 2002. What the court did in Moore versus the United States when it refused to uh, review that, that 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 case was a case out of Springfield, Massachusetts, and federal agents had set up same thing, a pole type surveillance camera. And it was an eight month surveillance. Now, the technology is far more advanced than what I was using in 2001, 2002. But I was happy with that technology back then because it was a lot better than the old Nagras we used down in New York City. <laughs> You know, those those hot packs that you used to put on an informant or an undercover. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of information that you can find out with it with a pole camera and the ability to pan, tilt, zoom in. So they they got a lot of personal information, plates, you know, packages that they were carrying in and out of the location. The, the the court, again, refused to look at the issue and just kind of let the lower court uh, decision stand and the First Circuit decision, which said, you know what, it's not a search. It doesn't violate the Fourth Amendment reasonableness clause. Now, there had been a prior case, uh, United States versus Tuggle out of the Seventh Circuit that really dealt with the same issue, except this surveillance was for 18 months an 18-month long surveillance. And I have to go back to uh, the, the Carpenter case. The Carpenter case came out of the court a few years uh, before, and that involved the cell site locator information and uh, whether police need a warrant or not. It used to be that police would just go to the um, providers, the communications providers, and drop a subpoena and, and get information. And we all know our cell phones are tracking us daily. And uh, the court said there, there's this thing called the mosaic theory. Little parts, pieces may add up to create this mosaic uh, and thus requiring Fourth Amendment protection, privacy protection. What the court, the lower court, I should say, in, in Moore and Tuggle, they said, well, the poll camera doesn't rise to that level. It's not so intrusive that we're going to say that the police need a warrant to, to do so. This is a, right now that's good for law enforcement. It's very good for law enforcement, but I could foresee this issue um, coming back to the court. I could see them eventually maybe uh, getting that right case and, and reviewing this issue again. I would hope that they would let the law stand because it is in a public place. There's no reasonable expectation of privacy in public, uh, but it depends on 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 the facts of each individual case and how uh, an appellate attorney is going to craft it. 
you know, what what what's done at the trial level and how the case develops. I mean, facts, little little facts are really are make the difference in, in many cases with with Fourth Amendment issues and, and searches and seizures. So that's that's an interesting case. I, I'm curious as to see what might happen in the future. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes we get out technology before we get out policy or, oh. or or the courts make a decision. And I mean, we're talking about the Supreme Court weighing in on cases, but in, in most of the cases we're talking about, they refuse to to see them or, or review them. And I think that in itself speaks volumes, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And look, the law is always catching up with with technology. I mean, many, many years ago, Justice Brandeis wrote an article, The Right to Privacy, and it was before he was even a judge, and he's a, a, an attorney. And it was in the Harvard Law Review, and he was talking about the advance of new technology. And basically, the new technology that concerned him was, was the camera. You know, the camera had been around for a while, but, you know, he was talking about that. So sure. And, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court hasn't had a case directly on drone usage. A lot of lower courts have. The 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 precedent to be guided by uh, for drones is basically cases back go back to the eighties from the U.S. Supreme Court. We haven't had a case directly on on point on on drone usage. We probably will at some point in time. Uh, I could also see some issues involving this mosaic theory coming up with with that as well because I mean drones uh, the, the the capability and capacity and, and what they can do and you can be in navigable airspace. And which is basically the criteria and zoom in and just collect, collect data 24 seven on a location on, on a residence, even one that's secreted in the woods. And then there've been some lower court cases, circuit courts, state court cases that have dealt with this, this issue. Um, and uh, they're, they're interesting cases, certainly. And again, they, they, re, they revert back some of them to the, the 1980s holdings uh, 1990s too of the, of the u.s supreme court dealing with fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters and, and things of that nature yeah yeah and speaking of technology and and i gotta say this that uh, local uh, jurisdictions often attack the use of shot spotter which is a listening device that are put on poles and also talk about privacy issues but i mean you just said it that in public there should be no expectation of privacy but you will see at least in local jurisdictions, uh, you know, communities and and uh, anti-police tactics people going after the use of technology to, to help. Well, and yeah, just to clarify on that too, I mean, in public, there's there's no reasonable expectation of privacy. But, you know, I always ask my students, you know, do, do you have a right to where you are, kind of locational privacy? Who, who knows you're here other than your classmates or your, your parents? And... Uh, you know, they talk about them being tracked by by their phones. Under this mosaic theory, again, if the the government surveillance is so intrusive, and that's what Justice Rehnquist talked about many years ago. Uh, there were two cases: United States versus Caro and United States versus Knotts. And I believe it was in Knotts where he said, "Look, if we get to the point somewhere down the line where it's that dragnet type law enforcement." Then we may have to revisit this issue. Well, I'll submit we're there now. We do we do have that capability for dragnet type law enforcement through all, all of the technology we have. It's a question of how invasive it becomes to that individual or in our in our individual lives. Uh, the, the third party doctrine, Justice Sotomayor has been, a, you know, pushing to maybe get rid of the, the third party doctrine 
uh, or or limit it because you know their cell phones nowadays are so ubiquitous. Everybody has one, but who reads their their end user agreement? And uh, the, there was a recent case, and the name just escapes me right now, but that was a that was an issue in, in that as as well. So yeah, the law is always behind in technology and seems to drag its feet a little bit too. But you know, the court waits for that right case to come come before because they they look at issues very narrowly, very fine line that they're going to look at issues. Yeah. Well, we've had for, you know, probably decades now, uh, the ability to put together kit guns, uh, maybe <laughs> replica guns, uh, you know, World War II, uh, Civil War uh, replications. Now we're talking about ghost guns. Has there been any case looked at or decided by the Supreme Court yet for uh, ghost guns or guns made on 3D printers? Again, not not directly. The court denied. Um, the the court basically, I believe it's kind of the Fifth Circuit, upheld. I'm sorry. Let me, let me go back. They, they they supported the government. They supported the government and the ATF's ban on ghost guns. Uh, there, the courts in Texas, the district court there, has been pretty active with pushing the agenda of ghost guns and, and favoring them and, and putting an injunction upon the ATF guidelines. Uh, the court basically listened to an emergency order review and lifted the, the ban. The court hasn't spoken on it one way or the other in any substantive matter, but they've just said, hey, the, the prevailing policy under the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms is going to stand. This is an issue, though, I'm sure, again, is going to come back to the court. And in those cases, I have them right here. It's Garland versus Blackhawk Manufacturing Corporation. And that was as recent as October 16th, 2023, where the court vacated the injunction that the Texas court placed upon the government ruling. And there was a prior case, uh, Garland versus Vanderstock, which was narrow. It was a narrow five to four uh, decision to 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 vacate the the lower court uh, injunction on the federal guidelines. Uh, you know, this is a court that is has a negative view towards the administrative state. They're looking to overrule a doctrine known as Chevron deference, a old case, 1984, I believe, Chevron versus National uh, Natural Resources Defense Council, and. Uh, Presently, the Supreme Court feels that there's too much power that the administrative state has. It's often been called our fourth branch of government. So it's going to become an issue, I think, down the line, whether or not the, the ruling by this executive agency, the, the, the Treasury, is, is valid. Or is this an area that Congress should have weighed into and it should have been leg legislated? Uh, but for now, that that's intact. There are two important cases, I think, interesting cases coming up dealing with the Second Amendment. And I believe it have a, a direct impact upon police officers' uh, safety and just handling of, of uh, gun-related calls. One is the issue over bump stocks. Uh, we're all familiar with bump stocks from 2017, uh, Las Vegas shooting and from the hotel. <clears throat> and the case is um, Garland versus Cargill. And basically, it's whether or not the definition of machine gun is defined under a federal statute and by the ATF is going to cover bump stocks. For a decade prior to the Las Vegas shooting, uh, 
the the ATF took the position that it was not qualified as as a as a machine gun. They changed their ruling subsequent to Las Vegas. So bump stocks are are going to be challenged, and we're going to see a case before the court directly on that. The other issue is the United States versus Rahimi, and this involves whether or not a domestic violence uh, defendant uh, or an individual also convicted of a felony should be denied the right to possess a weapon. And it's going to be very interesting to see the outcome in this case, because Rahimi uh, is somebody who was under domestic violence protective uh, order, stay away order, and um, or convicted of the domestic violence and had prior felony convictions or violent convictions, one involving a hit and run. And I believe also uh, I have it in my notes here somewhere. Uh, several other uh, violent crime, multiple shootings, multiple shootings. Uh, <clears throat> when they police searched his home, they found a rifle and a pistol. So he's making a Second Amendment claim that just because I'm a felon, you can't take my gun from me. It's going to be interesting to see how this turns out uh, when it gets to the court and what the court might might say. There's a case that Justice uh, Coney Barrett, when she's in the Seventh Circuit, uh, wrote, um, weighed in on, and it was uh, Cantor versus Barr. And she she wrote, founding era legislatures did not strip felons of the right to bear arms simply because of their status as felons. I mean, argue, arguably, if somebody is convicted of you know embezzling $3,000 and it's a fed, felony and they get convicted, I can see the argument. Rahimi, we're dealing with somebody who has prior, you know, multiple shootings, hit and run, uh, based upon the facts that I read. So it's going to be interesting to see what the court decides in in that case. Uh, certainly, if they if they say, yeah, felons galore, have have your guns. It's going to be a tough world for police. It's going to be a really yeah. tough world. You know, yeah. I mean, we can all we can all say, yeah, we, we value the Second Amendment, but we value a reasonable approach to the Second Amendment. Uh, I don't think it'd be reasonable to 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 grant it. And in, in, in that sort of circumstance, we have a violent felon and requesting their Second Amendment, Second Amendment rights. Uh, no right is absolute. Reasonable restrictions can be placed upon them. And that's what Justice Scalia even said in District of Columbia versus Heller. Uh, the the federal case uh, which preceded McDonald versus uh, City of Chicago, but Scalia said, you know, look, there's a Second Amendment right; it's an individual right. The court said that, as opposed to the court's old holding in Miller that it was a collective right. He said, but governments can still place reasonable restrictions upon that, and subsequently, the courts the the, the courts refused to grant review to cases challenging silencer bans and and other other bans, uh, magazine capacity bans. So uh, it's it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how the court weighs in on this one. And this is all a result of its more recent decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Yeah, yeah, and I mean the devil's in the details, and yes, whether whether or not an embezzler uh, has the right to a firearm, I don't know if anybody would really care that much. But uh, that's why going back to ghost guns, we're seeing the the prevalence of ghost guns in the hands of convicted felons, gangbangers, uh, easy to obtain, no serial numbers, no identifying marks, use it, throw it off a bridge. Uh, if we were to say that regardless of your felony background, you could still 
uh, have a, you're entitled to possess a firearm. Wow. That would be huge. And, and that's with the qualification that I am a believer in the second amendment. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'll, I'm sure I'll get an email or two, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, we've got to draw the line, I think on violent, chronic repeat felons and, and the access to firearms. Sure. Absolutely. And look, the, the, the watch word, the watch word in the law is reasonableness. Uh, it's always the reasonable person standard. Uh, myself and any of my my colleagues in the justice and law department at the university I teach at, uh, the the attorney faculty were always drilling into their heads the reasonable person, the reasonable person. So it's a question of reasonableness, and can the government place reasonable, reasonable with a capital R restrictions? I don't think anybody has an argument with reasonable restrictions and keeping guns out of the hands of violent felons. Yeah, um, Ben, you're right. Devil is in the details. Absolutely. Hey, respectful of your time. Thank you for being on the show. Terrence Dwyer, retired New York State Police Trooper, investigator, professor, attorney, author. (laughs) (laughs) You've got it surrounded. You're going to release Homeland Security Law Issues and Analysis from Canella Publishing. You've got some articles coming out. Tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, um, my new my new textbook. This is my third textbook. It comes out. It goes to press next week, and it should be out before the end of the year or just the beginning of the year. It's a it's a textbook. It's guided towards, uh, well, you know, graduate programs, but also law enforcement, uh, federal, you name it. The issues involving homeland security. Uh, homeland security issues takes a look at uh, the early stages of homeland security up through uh, present times just, just again law based very very law based um and then uh, my upcoming uh, article for uh, my annual year end review which i've been do- doing for police one since 2008 on the supreme court what we what we talked about today in the new year, I hope to get out some more articles dealing with qualified immunity, stop and frisk, you know, the, the things that pertain to police officers that they need on the street. You know, <clears throat> I feel in the academies there, they're given their, their training on weapons, defensive tactics, which is great. Evoc, driving, everything else. They get law. They don't get enough law. We need to arm them with with uh, the, the legal knowledge as well, not to be attorneys or practitioners but to give them even more of the tools that they need uh, out on out on the street because that's that's important as well yeah absolutely hey thanks so much for taking time with us today thanks for having me take care all right hey to our listeners i hope you enjoyed today and check out the article i'm going to list a link in the show notes below and look for uh terry dwyer's New book, Homeland Security Law Issues and Analysis, coming out uh, soon. And hey, stay safe out there. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And hope to talk to you again real soon. Take good care.